Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stefan Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So, Samantha, I know we've discussed, like, if we did a kind of watch through podcast or reaction podcast, Sex in the City is the idea that we've floated. Yes, because I think it is chock full of so many current events that are no longer relevant uh-huh. and trying to be edgy at that point in time mm. and what we thought was a revelation when it came to women's sexuality. Yeah. And then looking back on it and being like, oh God, that's that was bad. That was real bad. Versus also just like, trying to understand what we thought sex was. And I feel like Sex in the City actually pushed the narrative right. of trying to figure that out for ourselves, as well as, even though it wasn't real life, the whole idea of camaraderie and having women actually like women mm-hmm. was kind of new. Mm-hmm. And having single women being single for so long, even if one of the aspects of it was they were trying so hard to find someone, it still was a, kind of like a, a fresh like perspective instead of just being married, family, sitcom, watch the dad do something dumb in the story. Right. So yeah, I think it is just a really good idea because you have so many dynamics to that with each character fulfilling some type of, you know, as we had the writer tell us, you know, it kind of fulfills every part of you. Like they have different personality right. parts. It's like, yeah, let's talk about this. I, I think it's a wonderful idea. I'm yes. on board. I'm on board. I think we should do it too. Uh, I have refrained from watching it in case we do this because I want to be fresh. I want. I think it's a good that yes. you'll you have the experience, and I'll come yes. from completely never have seen it, and also like, not prude is definitely not the right word, but I do get like I naive, <laughs> like oh naive, I get a little Naivete. flustered. Um, I don't consume a lot of like content about romance or sex or anything like that. So uh, people do usually get a chuckle out of how um, flustered I get. (laughs) I mean, I think it'd be hilarious, yes, for that. But also just, again, the unrealistic things, it almost becomes comical because you're like, that's not how that works. Like You just kind of sit there and look and like, who thought this was a good idea? And of course, within that, you have the several unrealistic expectations of relationships in general. And of course, how rich these women are. You're like, who lives in this world? Sure. Not us. (laughs) But I think it's really funny because it it is. It's kind of also being able to have that comic relief. But I also have been feeding you the tidbits to be like, oh, Mm -hmm. you talked about this. Let me tell you how it relates to Sex in the City. Yes, which is awesome. (laughs) I'm like, really? How does Sex in the City relate to XYZ (laughs) random thing I just said? Give me a minute. <laughs> it's amazing. I can't think of what I would do a watch like reaction thing of. I'm trying to get Lauren over on the other podcast I do savor to do one of the Star Wars holiday special with me because I think it would be hilarious. Oh. Yeah, oh. I'll have to think on that. But I wanted to ask you this because, yes, it is Pride Month as we're recording this. And we wanted to bring back our uh, two-parter on bisexuality that we did with these amazing guests that were just the most wonderful and talented people that we could have talked to about this. And often when guests come on, we want to be their friends after. And uh, we understand that people are busy and maybe don't want uh, podcasters, (laughs) podcast friends latching on to them. (laughs) But Tanya on these episodes, she talked about her Buffy 
reaction, yes. Buffy the Vampire Slayer reaction podcast. And I was like, this is, I want to be friends so badly. <laughs> yes. Phenomenal. She's actually right now doing some really great bikus, as she calls yes. them. So if you're not following her on Twitter, you really should because it's quite phenomenal and, and, and so cute. Yes, I love that so, 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 so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so please enjoy part two of this classic episode on bisexuality. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Today we are bringing to you our part two right. of our episode on bisexuality. And for the trigger warning of the episode, um, sexual assault, suicidality, mental health issues, and domestic violence... Also, we strongly encourage you to listen to part one yes. before listening to this one because part one gives a lot of baseline definitions. And introduction um, to our interviewees. Yes, they, they introduce themselves far better in, in that episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, just a lot of terms we'll be using were explained in that episode. Um and we also went into the negative impact of biracial and binegativity in that. And before we get into um, all of our, our guest interviews, we did want to touch on the media for a second when it comes to bisexuality. There are several famous examples there of are. celebrities um, who are bisexual. Angelina Jolie, Anna Paquin, Cara Delevingne, Alan Cumming, Abby Jacobson, Alice Walker, Anna Akana, Billy Joe Armstrong. <laughs> Billy Joe Armstrong, my... My boy, my homeboy, I had a Your huge homeboy. crush on him for years. Oh, my gosh. Evan Rachel Wood, Drew Barrymore, Gina Rodriguez, Lady Gaga, Roxanne Gay, Tessa Thompson, lots more. So many more. There are some famous fictional examples, and right now the big one is Rosa Diaz on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Right. Callie Torres on Grey's Anatomy. Uh, there's Kat on Madam Secretary, Petra Solano on Jane the Virgin, David Rose on Schitt's Creek, Grace Choi on Black Lightning, Nova Bordelon on Queen Sugar, Daryl Whitefeather on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, who announced his bisexuality via song. Of course. Uh, yes, of course. Um, Sarah Lance and Constantine on Legends of Tomorrow, Nomi and Dave on no on Grownish. I will say I haven't seen all of these. I cannot say I, I was going to say, I think I've seen like two or three Mm -hmm. Of all of these? <laughs> yes. I cannot say they're good representations. Right. Um, and I know that Constantine in particular, I can't say for sure if it's ever been, like, said definitively. Oh. Um, but those are examples I found right. people gave online. Um, one thing worth noting is there's far less men than women. Um, yes. You could just tell by the list. Yes. Yes. And that is something that um, was commented on a lot when I was looking into this. Looking into news outlets, the mainstream ones rarely write about bisexuality. For instance, in 2017, the New York Times tweeted bisexual seven times and gay over 100. The Wall Street Journal has tweeted it twice and does not appear to have any stories with bi or bisexual in the headline. Wow. And 
I got to thinking about some tropes, some stereotypes I've right. seen in our media. Because for a long time, bisexuality has kind of been a punchline mm-hmm. in our entertainment. Um, Carrie Bradshaw's Sex in the City line that it's just a layover on the way to gay town, for right. instance. Or Liz Lemon on 30 Rock when she quips that it was just something invented in the 90s to sell hair products. Or the L Words assessment that it is, quote, just gross. Um, or a bisexual character as crazy, in quotes, are evil, like Frank Underwood on House of Cards, Lady Gaga's character Elizabeth on American Horror Story, big examples of that. And this lack of good representation has consequences. It shapes how we see bisexual people and how bisexual people see themselves. We spoke to our panel of experts, Dr. Tangela Roberts, Dr. Tanya Israel, Diane Adams, and Haran Greensmith, all of whom were rad, are rad, and activists in the bisexual community. Here's Tangela and Tanya. I think that um, maybe, like, the media just can't get it right because there's there's a lot of, like, mystery. What is the bisexual? And a lot of just what people talk about is this media representation of, you know, either the cis woman who's the unicorn and she gets invited to, like, have a threesome with a couple or... No, that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'd say. I was going to say the evil bisexual. Right. Yeah, yeah, the e- there's always the evil bisexual who's, like, you know, running rampant in queer communities and, like, breaking lesbians' hearts or... Mm. But then at the same time, you have, like, this media image of, like, the lesbian who wants to, like, quote-unquote, turn straight women. I'm like, well, could it be that those straight women are actually bi and you're not that magical? I'm going to talk a little bit about internalized stigma. Um, Because what happens for people is that there's all these negative messages out there about uh, sexual orientation. I mean, there's negative messages out there about all kinds of things. So, you know, if, if you're not a sexual minority person, you can think about Things that you heard, like let's say you're um, an ethnic minority person, you can think of things that you heard about your ethnic group. Um, if you're a person uh, with a disability, you can think about like what did you hear about people with disabilities. And and the problem with all of those messages being out there in the world is that they get transmitted through so many different ways, through media representations and through what you learn in school and what you hear from your faith leaders and what your parents tell you or what your parents are silent about and avoid telling you and what your peers say or what your peers tease you about or bully other people about. Like these messages get communicated in so many different ways. And the problem is then we can start to believe those things about ourselves. Like even if on some level we're like, well, I don't think that's true. There may be some level, either conscious or unconscious, that we start to believe those things. So when we internalize those negative messages from outside, it can really eat away at our mental health. Um, And we can see that. Like, we know that um, internalized stigma for bisexual people is associated with um, negative mental health outcomes. And so we we can see that the... um, the more people believe those things, those negative things about the group that they belong to, um, then then they're going to, um, you know, have more struggles uh, with their mental health. The good news is, actually, this is really exciting, I have to tell you this, that my research team created 
this online intervention. So these online activities, interactive activities, takes about half an hour to do them. And they can actually decrease internalized stigma. So, or if you, you know, if you compare people who do these activities, people who did other kinds of activities, like they've got lower internalized stigma in half an hour. And I'm like, wow, this is super exciting because, um, you know, it's a small difference that it makes, but it's encouraging to think that there are things that we can do that can actually change that for people. Um, uh, and, And we can help people like to support their resilience in the face of all of these negative messages that that they get exposed to. So I'm really excited about that. So we have some more for you listeners, but first we have a quick break from a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. One thing we are curious about was the personal experiences of our interviewees. Then they were gracious enough to oblige. I learned the amazing term in grad school about um, knee search. So <laughs> one of my grad school colleagues said that at some point in, in certain fields, probably not so much with like chemistry and physics because there's like so much amazing things that you can do, but more so with like the social sciences, you tend to do a lot of knee search. You're like, I'm doing research on myself because this is experience that I have and I want to see if other people have it. Um, and that sort of was my introduction into um, doing bio research and it expanded a little bit. But some of my personal experiences, oh my gosh. <laughs> I've, oh my God. Um, I've dated queer women who have said that they were afraid I was going to leave them for a cis man. Um, which usually led to me saying that it really doesn't matter who I leave you for because it's not you. We asked about their coming out stories. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, I feel like it's so stereotypical. It was when <laughs> I was in college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 like, I almost like just hate saying it because like everyone's like, oh, you, everyone explores their sexual orientation in college, sure, and I want it to be something different. But no, when I was in college, I was at a, um, at a, a private Catholic school with like single, single sex dorms, and I fell in love with my roommate at the time, and that sort of put me in like a this mental tailspin. I was like, wait, what is this? Like, I like her, but I like her more than a friend. I like her like I want to always be around her. I like her like I've liked boyfriends in the past. Uh, this is interesting. And I remember, I think like my confusion then wasn't wasn't really like, oh, I'm confused about this orientation. It was like, oh, but wait. I don't think I, I don't I don't think lesbian fits for me. I don't think lesbian has ever fit for me. And I actually remember like running out of the dorm room into like the quad area, and I was like, yeah, no, that 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 guy that I saw that works in the library, he's so hot. Got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm by, and that's sort of what I'm just gonna have to stick with, because yeah, I just sort of like what I like, and it comes in different packages. And okay, sure, that's fine. Um, so I, it wasn't really like like detrimental, I guess, for me. But I mean, I did have some pretty negative um, experiences with some family members, and 
that's it's always a process coming up with family like they have to sort of go through their shock and grief and um hopefully eventual acceptance but that's always that process but i've been lucky enough to um have really really great friends honestly like i have the best group of people that i can call like my assumed family in the world um and at that time i was in college and so i was lucky enough to sort of use my growing research interest as a way to explore more about sexual orientation so i was like okay i think i'm bi let me write let me like do some research about this and see if i can like do a presentation on bisexuality in one of my classes can i get away with that (laughs) sure why not it's college (laughs) (laughs) well the first thing i'll say is i you know i don't think i was bisexual when i was growing up like when i was in high school and college like i i don't think that i came out when i was 25 i think i actually like became bisexual in a way um and and so I, I just want to sort of acknowledge that there can be fluidity in that also. But I'm also going to say this super clearly. The fact that people's sexual orientation can change doesn't mean you can change it, you know, doesn't mean that you can, like, have a treatment or something that's going to change your sexual orientation. So there's a difference between, like, understanding fluidity and and trying to change sexual orientation. I know y'all know that, but I'm just saying yes. that. Very <laughs> so good point to make. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, 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 so the first thing that changed was just, sort of coming into my understanding of myself as bisexual. And um, for me, it started out as a much more cognitive process, I think, than it does for other people. Like, I was like, okay, I don't think I'm a, I, I don't think I'm a um, zero on the Kinsey scale. I'm probably more like a one or a two. So it, so then does it make sense for me to identify as heterosexual? And then I went, well, okay, what do I identify as? So it took me a while to kind of get to bisexual. But I'll tell you the, um, the thing that, where, where I really was like, oh, yes, I'm bisexual, was, and this is, this is a, um, a story about, like, the importance of visibility and community. Because I went to this conference. It was the Association for Women in Psychology Conference, and it's a feminist uh, psychology conference. And there's a caucus on bisexuality and sexual diversity there. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go to that. Yeah. But, like, that's the moment where I felt like, okay, I can fully embrace this identity. And so, so I'm just going to say that that's something important is for people to be exposed to people who are like them, who are bisexual, because I'm not like all bisexual people. There's an awful lot of bisexual people out there. And so might not be a fit, but finding those, those specific groups. So that was really exciting. And then I was like, yay. And then I, I wrote some, I did a presentation and I wrote some personal narrative stuff about being biracial and bisexual. And so, you know, I kind of put that out there, um, but then it was so it was a salient part of my identity, but it wasn't necessarily like the only thing going on. I felt like I was, you know, part of a broader LGBTQ community. Um, and I would always say, you know, people would be like, oh, yeah, it's great to have all these lesbians together. And I would say, and bisexuals, you know, <laughs> so I was always like speaking up about that. Yeah. But it was it was really um, when I did the TED Talk and then, you know, all of the stuff that's come after that, that it's become like 
such a salient part of my identity. And so, you know, so I would say that the thing that's changed most is probably the salience of it um, for my life. I, I will also say, because I was teaching this class on bisexuality, um, I, I, uh, I dressed like the bisexual flag for each class. <laughs> Here's Diana's story. I had some struggles with, with my coming out journey, particularly because I think that people perceive bi women, particularly feminine bi women like me, um, as, you know, slutty or as sexually promiscuous mm-hmm. or as just interested in having threesomes. And so then people project that story onto you and that's really, you know, too much information, too personal for um, being openly bi, for instance, in the workplace or with your family, if that's the way people are perceiving what bi means. And so I really dealt with that. Um, even at my first job as a lawyer, they circulated our resumes, which included my bisexuality activism as a law student, and our pictures. And the time, I was very blonde and feminine looking. And they decided on the basis of the fact that I was basically a pretty feminine girl and that I was bisexual, that I shouldn't have any male supervisors because I was probably a risk for getting involved with one of my male supervisors because bisexual women, you know, must be sexually available, which is absolutely appalling. And this was a law firm in New York City um, 15 years ago. This was not so long ago. And that is still happening, that kind of experience um, of being over-sexualized and stereotyped in that way. So I feel like you deal with a lot of that from the straight world. And then in the um, LGBTQ world at the same time, I was entering queer spaces and was perceived as not queer enough. And at the time, the movie Legally Blonde had come out and um, some of the lesbians in the LGBTQ group were teasing me and would like leave me pink fluffy things and call me Legally Blonde because um, they also stereotyped me because I was feminine and I didn't wasn't queer enough for them. Um, and so I got a lot of hostility from both sides and even being openly bisexual, um, as a student activist with my law school professors and with my deans, I was then wondering, given those experiences, oh God, is my dean thinking about me having a threesome? Because that's what people think of when they think of bisexual. And so I'm very deeply involved in the LGBTQI community, but then I'm meeting colleagues who are often in same-sex relationships, and I have a husband. And so I still have to come out, and I still see raised eyebrows and surprised looks that I'm very serious about this kind of activism and this kind of community, and yet I'm in a different sex partnership. So I'm still regularly having to come out and still dealing with that and having to sometimes wonder whether people are going to think of me differently or think of me as less of a part of the community. I have entered into a marriage with a bisexual man, mm-hmm. and we went on vacation to Morocco and to Turkey uh, in the past year. And those are places where if I had happened to end up with a same-sex um, spouse, it would not be safe for me to go to the places that I went to. Right. And that is not fair, and I have mixed feelings about that. Mm-hmm. And part of the way that I use those privileges because I really do feel like now I have privileges. I'm not being actively stigmatized. My marriage is not at risk. My parenting status is not at risk. I'm not at risk of violence for traveling. I can go undercover and pass as just a white different sex couple. Um, I, I feel an extra responsibility to the LGBTQ community. And it's actually made me go deeper into my activism because I feel like I have the privilege to not have this be 
deeply traumatic on a day-to-day basis in terms of my own parenting status. And so, for example, I work really actively to make sure that um, same-sex couples and other LGBTQ families can maintain their parenting status because right now within the U.S. and in Europe, it's still very common that same-sex couples aren't able to get their parenting status. It is still completely legitimate and legal in much of the United States and Europe to discriminate in terms of foster care and adoption, to not even to not be able to adopt a child for, through many adoption agencies mm-hmm. um, and to not feel safe traveling in many places and to not be able to get your parenting status recognized, which can really have devastating consequences if non-biological parents are then excluded from hospital rooms when their kids are injured in a foreign country, for example, because they're not recognized as a parent. Right. Um, so I feel really I feel really committed um, to being there as an LGBTQ activist and feel um, the the deep inspiration to claim this as part of my identity because it's an important part of myself, even though I happen to marry a man, mm-hmm. um, and to then use that um, situation of greater relative comfort, which isn't fair, to go back and support the rest of my LGBTQ community. And here's Heron. I'll tell um, one personal story about uh, facing discrimination from the my my supportive communities. Um, so about uh, maybe 17, seven years ago, mm-hmm. I uh, was working in a large organization, a large LGBT organization, and I marched in pride with my partner, who is a person of a different gender than me, mm-hmm. a long-term partner. We've been together now for 12 years. And he and I were super excited to march in pride. There was like a bedazzling shirt party beforehand, and we like caught our shirts up and bedazzled them with like those, those metal, like weird triangle pyramid mm-hmm. things. Um, we had like face paint on and like bandanas and we were carrying one end of like the balloon arch, the rainbow balloon arch. Mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. we had fans and we were like handing up stickers and he and I were holding hands the whole time and like smooching because everyone is holding hands and smooching. And we had a really fabulous time. And then we returned the balloon arch back to the main office of the organization and we were writing down from the offices to the bottom of the building, me, my partner, and then um, another of my coworkers, male, gay, who um, I had worked with my entire uh, internship there all summer. And um, so he he knew me quite well and he had been there the entire time of the parade. And he said, hey, Heron, um, I have someone I'd love to hook you up with. Can I give you her number? And I said, oh, thank you so much. You know, uh, my partner and I are actually monogamous. Thank you. And we're we're monogamous right now. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Um, oh, who's your partner? (laughs) And I looked down at mine and my partner's hands (laughs) being held together. Mm -hmm. And then I look up at my partner and I point to him and I'm like, this person? <laughs> My partner's like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> and the man turned around in the elevator and faced the wall. I think one of the reasons I tell that story is because it is a really good illustration of bias in kind of a funny way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but there's another story that I don't actually tell very frequently. Um, 
that really impacted my ability to to do my job and to feel safe. Mm. It was at another organization, and I was in the car with my immediate supervisor, and we were in the car for a long journey, a couple hours, and halfway through, she turned to me out of the blue, and she said, Karen, have you ever been in a long-term relationship with a woman? And I felt cold all over. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there was no right answer to this question. There were only wrong answers to this question. Yeah. If I said yes, she would make me define long term. Hmm. If I said no, she would essentially use that as justification to herself to dismiss my queerness, Mm -hmm. to dismiss me being part of her community. Mm. If I didn't say anything, I would be not answering my boss's Mm. direct question Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. And it was clear that she thought this was an appropriate question to ask an employee. Mm, Yeah. You know, we were both attorneys. We were headed to a hearing. Oh, gosh. And this is what started the day for me. Right. Demanding that I justify my identification as a queer person. What was your response? And what was her response? Does it matter to you what my response was, actually? I think the reason I ask is because for so many people, what do you do in those situations? Like, I cannot imagine being pigeonholed into that situation. And for a woman or I'm sorry, a person like you who survived and continue to tell that story as something that has impacted you and will probably impact you, obviously does, for a long, if not forever. I think that question came because of like, what did you do? Like, what can you do? What did you do? I think that's my thought. And just wondering, like, the audacity. Yeah. (laughs) That question alone. Yeah, I think I'm going to push a little bit and not tell you okay. because I, I, I'm I going to use this as like a little opportunity to like, you know, let maybe you and some listeners be like a little uncomfortable with not right. knowing right. because it, it doesn't matter. That's the truth mm-hmm. about that question is the answer isn't relevant. Mm. You know, if someone had never had any relationship with anyone and identified as straight or gay, no one would ever question Mm -hmm. their sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, bisexuality, validity, is predicated upon someone's sexual contact with people Mm -hmm. and the quantity and the quality and the duration. And for some reason, our sexual orientation is the only sexual orientation subjected to that level of Mm. scrutiny and analysis. Mm. 
Mm-mm. <laughs> Sorry. I'm taking it all in. Mm. Take it in. Take it in. <laughs> There's a lot of emotions. I've got tears in my eyes right now. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we got a little emotional and we wanted to know how to be better allies. Obviously, as someone who misunderstood and did not quite see the depth of why this is so dangerous, misrepresenting bisexual, the terms, why it was so dangerous, I definitely had to ask, how do I become a better ally? How do I make sure that this does not happen in my circle or those around me or my influencing? Um, And as you can hear, there's a moment of intensity with Heron. And it was really uncomfortable, but as uncomfortable as it was, her point was amazing, the fact that this is how she felt. This is how uncomfortable she was as well. And it, I was like, wow, you know what? I really appreciate this moment, even though, again, I was super uncomfortable. We all kind of stopped, and I looked around. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> but it was so necessary, and it was so important that she was able to say that. Like I said, funding is, I mean, funding is definitely um, at the, the, the source of a lot of uh, social issues, right? Um, so if you're looking at, um, and I don't have, I don't have the numbers offhand, um, but if there's a few articles that, that have showed like the amount of um, federal, um, both federal and sort of community funds um, to LGBT organizations, and if you're breaking them down by identity, bisexual people, although statistically they they're most people who identify as some sort of LGBT identify as bisexual or LGBT if we're looking at sexual orientation identify as bisexual. So there's more people who identify as bisexual than there are people who identify as lesbian and gay. So we have the numbers in terms of like, you know, we got like a whole bi-posse over here, but we're not getting the funding for that. So even though there's a ton of people who identify as bisexual that isn't represented in the funding for um, by programming, for bisexual awareness, for uh, health disparities research, for any other types of research. So it's it's in an interesting place where you have the bodies, but you don't have the money to support those bodies. Um, recently, actually, I saw an article going around social media that said the a large number of black women identify as bisexual. And I was like, duh, like, seriously, <laughs> we're just not talking about this. Um, and so, again, we have the numbers. We know that there's a ton of black women who identify as bisexual. But I haven't seen any type of resources or um, research or sort of health advocacy or any sort of social advocacy specifically for black bi women. But we know the numbers are there. But why aren't we sort of supporting that? When we have we have the data that shows we have the people, right? Everything in research is like you know if you have if you have the people, then you know you can do the studies and you can you, can, you should be able to get the funding. And it's, we're not we're not getting that. Hmm. So we have a lot of people, but we don't have money to support those people. And that support to just look at look like funding um, funding bisexual organizations like. Um, Binet USA, like the New York Area Bisexual Network, like BRC, um, offering more funding so they can do more community work, um, having more research funding. I, I mean, as a bi person who does research on bisexuals, I would, I would love to be able to apply for like a bi-specific like federal grant. What? That'd be amazing. Um, and that's not, 
and it's not just in like a oh I want that for me because I'm not, I'm not it's not for me I'm not doing this you know research like on me I'm doing it on other people and it's so I can it's so people can sort of disseminate this research out and so we can reach more people and have like a bigger impact um, so I think it, it really it all boils down to the money at the end of the day I think that um, it's really powerful to do things like this um, and actually really listen. So I really appreciate everybody who's listening and being open to hearing from people from that community. And, and I'm appreciative that you are bringing people on who are from the bi community to really hear about our experiences. And I think that it's really useful throughout the LGBTQ community to be listening to the experiences, the lived experiences of people who are themselves transgender, who are intersex, who are asexual, who are lesbian, who are gay, or transgender, and being able to um, continue to keep an open mind and continue listening. I'm still listening. I've been listening for 20 years to my colleagues and my community, and we're all still learning. So I think being in a learning space is really helpful. I also think that as I feel the personal emotional space to take on some of these issues because they're not directing my own parenting status, for example, in a traumatic way. I think that it's, there's a really powerful space for allies when, for example, there have been absolutely horrific, um, horrific measures by the current Trump administration. Um, it's really useful when your LGBTQ friends are just feeling emotionally exhausted to be the one who's spreading the word online, who's talking to people about fundraisers, about issues, about calling your senators, having the energy to do that in moments when people in the LGBTQ community themselves might just feel really defeated. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of really powerful opportunities to be an ally. Um, I am a very committed ally, for example, to people in the transgender community, and I feel a lot of alliance between the bisexual and transgender community is often the, the hidden or more forgotten parts of the LGBTQIA continuum. And so I'm often interested in amplifying voices of transgender people as well as of intersex and asexual people, um, along with bisexual people, to sort of remind people that the only the only image out there isn't doesn't need to just be of lesbian and gay people uh, who are in same-sex marriages. And... I think that that's particularly important right now when the transgender uh, when transgender Americans are under so much attack and when there's been advisories from Trump's Health and Human Services that uh, people who are medical workers could not even maybe not even treat transgender people because of a religious exemption um, and that homeless shelters would be able to turn away transgender people. I think that um, those measures may not happen. Um, but still, they are a real um, hostile message to the very human dignity of people in the transgender community and people are feeling really beaten down. And so I'm often picking up the mantle and working on those issues. And my nonprofit, Chosen Family Law Center, has a transgender umbrella project, which is providing pro bono services in New York and New Jersey to transgender low-income people to do a full we're calling it an umbrella to protect from whatever storms come, a legal protection as well as name change package, because I think that's really important to be um, bisexual allies to the trans community. And I think that everybody can be a, uh, an ally to people who are bi by remembering in those moments to not erase bisexuals from the conversation. Um, you know, when you're watching the Queen documentary to say, wait a minute, don't describe him as a gay man. He actually had a long-term female partner. Mm -hmm. um, sounds like bi to me. You know, just being being willing to be part of that conversation of not erasing bisexual people from our community history is, I think, also really helpful. Right. Um, 
So one of the things that I had asked about in being an ally was something specifically with my job. I do work with teenagers. I do work with at-risk kids, um, and I work with them in a southern state. And for that, there's not a lot of training or understanding. And we do talk about the LGBTQ, but just like a majority of the society, we con- we concentrate on the LG. Mm-hmm. and the T. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's about it. And I wanted to know how do we service these youths who do identify as bisexual or who are trying to figure out if they're bisexual. And um, here she is and speaking about it. I've written a bunch about how we can support by youth, um, how we can support by adults. Um, the easiest way is honestly just to have conversations like these. Just talk about bisexuality, you know, normalize it among your non-bi communities. Mm-hmm. So people are like, oh yeah, bi, totally cool. Um, the second way is to integrate examples of bi and pan folks into your all of your literature. Mm-hmm. And that means posters on the walls. That means flyers. That means board reports. That means um, research. That means outreach to youth and outreach to donors and outreach to the community. Um, something simple as, you know, uh, Bianca, a black bi trans woman, was able to get a placement at this organization thanks to our work. Yay! Um, and, you know, if you want to go a little bit deeper, then, you know, have a support group for bi and pan youth, you know, once a month. And I promise you, nobody will come for two months. (laughs) And I think that's the point at which a lot of folks say, well, that means there's no bi and and pan people here. And that's the problem. Nobody, well, I should back up a little bit. Bi and trans folks have, bi and pan folks have been burned so frequently by organizations who try and kind of do like nominal support for bi and pan communities that we're really, really suspicious. But if an organization has a regular bi and pan support group night and they keep at it, even if there's no one there for six months, mm. people will come out. But you need to keep at it. I promise you all the data shows that bi and pan youth are everywhere. Right. And we are the majority of youth being served in every youth services organization that serves LGBT youth. I um, wrote a piece called Bisexuality Margin to Center um, and, uh, to, to think about ways that within the field of psychology and in society, we, we've thought about bisexuality as being on the margin. And, and so we haven't been paying attention to it. So we don't see it clearly. And so we're not actually like understanding who bisexual people are and responding to their needs. So what happens if we bring bisexuality into the center and use it as a lens to understand things? You can't understand bisexuality without understanding health disparity. Mm -hmm. You can't understand bisexuality without understanding history. You can't understand bisexuality without understanding media representation and mental health and, uh, and mental health services, and like all these different things, attitudes. So I was really teaching about a lot of different topics through the lens of bisexuality, because then, you know, we understand all of these things better. So that's the thing. If we center bisexuality, it helps us understand everything. We can then understand uh, 
you know, people who are in relationships with people of the same gender, uh, people who are in relationships with people of another gender. We can understand gender more complexly mm-hmm. also. Um, we can understand it multidimensionally. We, it, it helps us to complexify attraction. I, I had sort of thought I made up this word complexify, but apparently <laughs> it's, it's, it's an actual word, which I <laughs> love it. Uh, we'll give you credit for it because we've not heard it yet. Oh, so good job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the thing about attraction is that we might have attractions that are slightly different to some people. Like we might fall in love with some types of people and, you know, want to have sex with other types of people. And in bisexuality, we we have a better understanding of that. But that's something that's true of everybody. You know, everybody's got their sort of differences that they that they feel about attraction. Um, and so so we can see attraction through a different lens. We can also, some people, um, some of the negativity around bisexuality is because people see bisexual people as being just really like hypersexual. And so there's a lot of negativity about sexuality that's related to negativity about bisexuality. So I'm like, maybe centering bisexuality allows us to balance all that negativity around sexuality to challenge erotophobia, you know, to say, mm-hmm. okay, well, you know, maybe bisexual people like are sexual, but maybe so are heterosexual people and lesbian and gay people, and and maybe that's okay. Um, and and to embrace our sexuality. Same thing with monogamy. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to combat this stereotype that bisexual people can't be monogamous, because mm-hmm. it turns out that bisexual people, as a fact, are able to be monogamous. So, <laughs> so. So we know that, and we know that that bisexual people can be monogamous. However, bisexual people might be less likely to want to be monogamous um, and might be less likely to be monogamous than other people are. Now, that doesn't mean that they cheat. You know, we're talking about, like, consensual non-monogamy here. So maybe bisexuality, if we center that, we can be like, okay, how does that help us to understand different kinds of arrangements of relationships? And maybe that helps us to accept non-monogamy, you know, for people who, who want that. And maybe it helps us think about how to negotiate relationships so that it is consensual non-monogamy and so that, you know, so that everybody's clear. Um, and, and then I just think, you know, the potential to revolutionize gender is, is one of the most um, exciting things about bisexuality. Because, like, like I said, I don't think that it reinforces the idea of binary gender. In fact, I think ultimately bisexuality challenges the idea that gender is narrow and that gender is the most important characteristic for us to organize the way we think about people. Mm-hmm. So I think if we do that, you know, if we start to do that, then we can also say, wow, how do we center transgender people and gender non-binary people? How do we center other groups that are really vulnerable in our society? How do we center black lives? How do we center people with disabilities? How do we center um, people who are Muslim and people of other um, non-dominant religions? And so I think it just gives us a lot of opportunity to start um, expanding our thinking about bisexuality, but also about everybody who's on the margins and and how we can actually transform and improve our society by bringing all those vulnerable people into the center. 
We have some advice and resources for you listeners, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we're back with some advice. Yes. Advice is always welcome. Yes, and some resources. Oh, well, not All the always resources. welcome, but generally welcome. <laughs> if it's actually good advice, yes. Yes, and this was good advice. Yes. The other day, a friend of mine and I were talking about how when we were young and we realized that we both had a crush on both Mulder and Scully, <laughs> and we were so confused. Oh, me too. Yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> and we didn't, like, we didn't know bisexuality was a thing and feeling so confused about it. And um, as we got older, kind of this internalized bi-negativity that we thought it must be a phase because that's what we kept hearing. Like, you're young, you're going to grow out of it. Um, Do you have any advice for maybe younger people listening who are struggling with this right now? Right. Hmm. Absolutely. And I completely was a Mulder and Scully, both and kind of girl. (laughs) As an X-Files fan, in my opinion. Um, And um, I I think that it's okay to be in an experimental phase. I think one of the things that is really stigmatizing about people who are bisexual is there's this idea that many people who are bisexual are just in a phase. And so there's understandable hurt in... Um, sometimes a lesbian and gay community with bi people who are going to try out dating them and then decide it isn't for them. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people that get hurt in that process sometimes. I think that my suggestion is to be open to experimentation in a safe way with people that you trust without needing to have alcohol involved, without needing to have substances involved, Um, but finding people who feel really safe and being able to communicate honestly with them if you aren't sure. I think that um, rather than leaping into feeling like you need to have a label for your identity right away, um, you don't need to necessarily decide if you're bi, if you're pan, if you're gay, if you're lesbian, if you're trans, um, if you're gender non-binary. I think that it's possible just to have some experiences and see what feels right to you and be honest with the people around you when you're not sure how you feel. Um, And I think that it's also kind to those around you if you say, um, you know, hey, this is my first same-sex relationship but I'm not actually sure how it's going to go for me rather than meet someone and say that you're bisexual and keep that hidden and especially if there might be the possibility they might decide, actually, this isn't for me. Um, So I think that some of that hurt that people have around people who are experimentally bi can be dealt with partly by just all communicating a little bit more and being okay with the possibility of experimenting. It's fine to need some time to try to figure out who you are and try different experiences. And sometimes you try something and figure out it isn't for you and that's okay. So um, I hope that people can find safe places and safe people to feel like they can have those experiences. And I recognize that in much of the world, even in most of the United States, it isn't actually safe for um, a teenager, for a college student necessarily to express same-sex interest and desire. And there's a, a lot of pressure to keep yourself in the closet and to just play along with being straight. And um, and I think that's really understandable and that it isn't always a safe thing to 
get out and experiment with who you are. Um, but there are really wonderful, supportive communities for you if you can get yourself to them. Um, I was definitely one of those people who fled to New York City when I got the chance from a small working class rural town um, and found myself in a place where then it felt like it was safe to explore that part of myself with other really conscious people who were also interested in communicating and talking about it and processing who we were. And there's such embracing LGBTQIA communities out there um, online. If you can't physically get to them, there's you know wonderful supportive resources and people who are happy to talk and help process. Um, so I would encourage people who are experimenting, who are who are thinking about experimenting, who are confused, to feel free to reach out to. Um, supportive people who've been in the community for a while because I think there's a lot of um, support and a feeling of kinship with that kind of journey because you know most of us have been on a bumpy journey to get where we are now. We have some resources on our website um, at uh, chosenfamilylawcenter.org um, and we post things really frequently online and in our newsletter. Um, and in addition, there's a book that I really love um, called Whipping Girl uh, by Julia Serrano. Um, and she is a transsexual woman. She calls herself transsexual. That's her, her own definition. Um, and she talks about um, sexism and the scapegoating of femininity. And she's also uh, works with, uh, I believe she's an endocrinologist or has endocrinology knowledge. So she describes her experience of living um, as somebody who is assigned male at birth and then going through the experience of um, identifying as female and experiencing sexism for the first time. Um, and it's incredibly powerful. And she also writes about the uh, overlap between bisexuality and being transgender. And um, I think she does that really powerfully and also conveys uh, the kind of definition of bisexuality that I use um, in terms of bisexuality, not referring to um, a gender binary of only male and female. So I think that's one really fantastic resource. Um, and there's a really, really active and vibrant community online um, where you can find lots and lots of continuing conversation and sometimes infighting in the community. <laughs> and, and speaking of infighting, I want to point out that although I personally use the term bisexual and I think it's important that we hang on to that. And I haven't switched over to pansexual and don't think that there's necessarily a need for a new word. I completely support people in using whatever words and definitions feel right for them. So I support people who feel like they want to use pansexual because it's going to be more readily apparent to people who aren't necessarily activists in this space that it's trans-inclusive um, or for whom it just feels like the right term. And I think it's important that while we hang on to words like bisexual, which are, you know, legal medical definition, important for our activism politically, um, that we also feel free to experiment with words that um, are really personally meaningful for us and that can be an ever-evolving um, uh, set of terms that describe how people are feeling about their identity. And I think that's absolutely a valid part of the queer continuum, and I think that something that's also powerful and not spoken of very often is the way that we can go through a journey um, over the course of our lifetime. And I think I've personally, you know, known people who may have in the 90s identified as a, um, uh, you know, a, a 
butch lesbian who then went on to identify as a trans man who now may identify as more non-binary as the different ideas in our community evolve. And I don't think that that makes any of those identifications any less valid, but I think that we're all on an active journey as a community to, to understand the full realms of um, our sexuality and gender spectrums and the ways that those can even shift over a lifetime. I think that's also something that's worth mentioning about bisexual identity that's really true for me and many people I know is that it is not necessarily fixed at all times. And so over the course of my 20 years of adult life, I haven't necessarily been at all times 50% romantically and sexually interested to men and women. There have been times when I felt like I am mostly a lesbian, but I am married to my husband and I love him and all other men kind of gross me out. And there have been other times where I was primarily dating men. Um, There have been times where I was primarily romantically attracted to men and primarily sexually attracted to women, which is complicated, let me tell you. Um, (laughs) And so I think that All of that is a really realistic portrayal of uh, what this journey can be like. And so if people feel a little bit messy and confused along the way or feel like their definition of themselves is shifting, I don't think that's a problem. I think think that's a feature, not a bug. I think that's part of a beautiful, expansive uh, vision of queer identity that we're working on now. And I think that's one of the ways that the word queer is actually a really useful word because queer embraces a full continuum of identification and doesn't necessarily require us to break ourselves down into like, are you in the L, you know, are you over here in the L box or the G box, the B box, the T box? I think that it allows for multiple ways of identifying, which are outside of a system that uh, enforces sort of heterosexual uh, different sex monogamy and people being cisgender. Everybody who uh, who feels like they are somewhere outside of that or wants to allow for the possibility of that, I think queer is a wonderful word in that way as well. So one of my suggestions for listeners might be to embrace the ways that they are evolving and messy and not feel any guilt or shame about that. Honestly, I'd say like you're not like you're not alone. It might it might seem like you're you know surrounded by people who are some sort of different and the type of different that you are, people don't really get, but you're not alone. Like there's massive bisexual communities that are out there. Um, You know, younger people, older people, you know, there's there's community out there, you know? Um, Yeah. It might be kind of hard to find at first if you're not sure like where to look, but there's community out there and you know, like there's as much as there's like the stereotype of like the confused bisexual, there's, there's nothing wrong with being confused. Like people are, humanity is like this confusing concept and it's, it's okay. Sort of like think that you want to figure some stuff out and that's fine. Um, you know, being, being confused for a bit, um, is fine, but just trying not to give into the pressure that you have to choose a side when both sides are great. <laughs> All sides are great. Um, so, yeah. Why choose when you can just live an either or life? I don't think there's anything wrong with like answering both and, right? Um, I joke around a lot with my friends when, you know, we're just doing anything and they're like, oh, do you want this or do you want this? And my answer is just going to be yes. (laughs) Like, do you want Indian food or do you want Mexican food? Yes. Right. (laughs) Um, And I think that sort of shifting that mindset, I mean, like I say it jokingly, but like that sort of, what I want to do is sort of shift shift people's mindset that it doesn't have to be you want um, 
one sex or one gender or one expression or like a quote-unquote opposite sex, gender, or expression when there's multiple sexes, genders, and expressions. But I think, you know, for some people, the answer is just yes. And that should just be okay. Yeah. I think my advice is just to, to trust yourself. You know, maybe you do identify as bisexual. Maybe you identify as pansexual. Maybe your sexual orientation is fluid. A lot of people have fluid sexual orientation, and that's okay, too. Maybe you've gone through different labels in your life, and you'll change labels as you age, and that's okay, too. Sexual orientation is natural. It is immutable in the sense that everybody has a sexual orientation. But if yours changes over time, that's okay, too. You can be born the way you are, and that way fluctuate and evolve over time and still be just as valid as people who knew from the time they were four and have never changed. <laughs> that's great, too. But those among us who have fluid sexual orientations, we are just as valid and we were born the way we are. So if you have an evolution and that evolution ends with you identifying as bi or pan, welcome. I love you. You are part of my non-monosexual community and you're amazing. <laughs> and if you are just stopping by non-monosexuality through the fluidity of your lifetime, you are also amazing. I love you. Um, and I will advocate for you throughout your lifetime. And yeah, I mean, we're all awesome. Right. We're all cool. <laughs> so the Bisexual Resource Center is a great, um, it, it's got an online presence. So it's based in Boston, but, but if you look for Bisexual Resource Center online, they're on Twitter, they, um, they do a lot of work. Um, they've got a lot of resources available around bisexuality, and, and they're super awesome and collaborative. Um, Binet USA is also a great organization that does a lot of organizing and that, and that brings together, you know, people on these issues and does a lot of advocacy. And so that's a great group. There is a conference in Minneapolis every year um, for, um, for bisexual people. It's called the Because Conference. Mm -hmm. And it's been going on for decades. And most people don't know that. And so if you actually wow. want to go to a bi conference, you can do that. There's also going to be a, a bi conference in San Francisco this October. Um, so that's something. Um, and then there's also one of my favorite um, efforts around promoting visibility for bisexual people is uh, this still bisexual campaign. So if you look up like hashtag still bisexual, um, you'll find videos that, pe that bisexual people have made where they tell their stories hmm. through these sort of, like, they don't speak. They've got, like, cards that they've written on, and there's music, and there, it's, it's a lovely way to find bisexual people who might be similar to you, because you can search on their website by different, um, different types of bisexual people, like bisexual women or older bisexual people or, you know, different kinds of, like, bisexual people of color, different intersections. And I, I think that that's a great way to try to find yourself reflected somewhere. It's also a great way to be more visible. Like, mm -hmm. if people are like, hey, I want to do something to support other bisexual people, then you can do that, and you might find that, that it also supports you actually Speaking your or sharing your story and affirming that can be a great way to um, to actually elevate your own um, 
feelings about yourself as a bisexual person. And um, the, the bisexual discussion group that we have at Santa Barbara, um, a bunch of us participated. They actually, like the still bisexual folks, came up from L.A. and filmed us. And people in the group have talked about how meaningful that was for them to do that, to share that, to get responses from people on it. So I, I really think that's a very cool effort. Yeah, and I saw you got your video, and uh, one of the cards was that you write bisexual haiku. Is that true? <laughs> it is true. Yes. I write bisexual haiku. I call it baiku. Here's uh, a baiku that I wrote. Pride month is over, and I'm still bisexual. I'm not shocked. Are you? <laughs> It's so good. <laughs> oh, and in my class, um, for the last day of class, I the students, I, I, I asked them to write a baiku to summarize something that they learned in the class. And so the students wrote a bunch of awesome baikus, so I also tweeted those out. So you'll be able to find ah, stuff that my amazing students did, I too. I love it. And, of course, we had to ask about silver linings, right. um, hope, some hope in the future, some projects going on. Some amazing projects. I'm working on this project with a colleague of mine, Amanda Pollitt, on um, definitions of bisexuality. Um, so that's one that we're, um, we're working on writing and finishing up. But I'm, I'm in my own research and um, well, that's my research too, but in my own research and my new position as an assistant professor, I am um, doing a study on the impact of microaggression for um, queer people of color. Um, and with that, I'm also collecting data on people, well, black queer people, um, but I'm also collecting data on black bisexual people to sort of do an interview and, and get some of their experiences. So I'm really, really excited about this one because one, I'm like specifically looking at black queer people. Um, and it's how I'm starting like this new chapter of my life in terms of um, this new position that I'm in and really trying to like establish myself um, further with research. So I'm really excited about looking at this concept of microaggression, um, both in terms of race and in terms of sexual orientation as experienced by bisexual people. So I'm still I'm still recruiting for that one, actually. So we're probably going to be recruiting for a few more months. Um, but I'm so excited to get more people to take the survey and sort of start to analyze the results on that. I'm, I'm really excited about what this is going to look like. I'm part of a group called Bylaw, um, as in B-I Law, and it's a group of bisexual attorneys who are activists around this issue. And we did, for example, an amicus brief to the Supreme Court during the Supreme Court litigation related to same-sex marriage about making sure that bisexual people were included in the language because much of the language was speaking only about gay and lesbian people and not speaking about the fact that um, bisexuals are also impacted. And so, you know, it's not just that people who are gay or lesbian um, wouldn't have the opportunity to get married. Uh, you know, only only gay and lesbian people you know, couldn't get married because they 
um, can't get into a different sex marriage. Even for me as a bisexual person, if I wanted to choose that, that should also be valid. Even if I could potentially be in a, a, a different sex relationship, I might want to choose a same-sex relationship. So making sure that that language is included is something that we often are the ones who will submit an anarchist brief, bring up that issue. This also comes up in issues like um, immigration cases when people are refugees who may be stigmatized because they are um, because they've been in um, same-sex relationships because they're perceived as LGBTQ. And then sometimes if they're coming in and trying to prove their immigration status, um, it could be used against them saying, for example, you know, you're not a lesbian who's stigmatized because we have proof that you were once in a relationship with a man. Well, that doesn't mean that you're not also a bisexual person who may face a lot of stigma for that. I think that it's been an incredibly useful thing for us as a community in the past 50 years since Stonewall um, to fight so hard for same-sex marriage in the United States, and it's been an absolutely amazing civil rights victory. I often speak as a lawyer about how it's an amazing story of a political movement because going from such a deep level of stigma to relative acceptance of same-sex marriage as a done deal in the United States in 50 years is just absolutely astonishing. And so it's been incredibly important, I think, and really powerful to fight for same-sex marriage. But now I'm part of a community of lawyers and activists saying, well, hold on, not everybody wants to get married. And <laughs> marriage is not necessarily the only family form that's worth valuing. Only half of American adults are actually married, and I'm interested in finding out more information about what those other kinds of family structures look like, because not everybody um, is, is getting into marriages. People are choosing other things, and some other people may have found other kinds of structures that work for them. So, for example, I work with platonic co-parents, and that is situations in which people want to be biological parents, but rather than basing that parenting relationship on romance, um, finding a close, committed friend to do that with. And I think that's particularly useful in situations in which you might have a gay man that wants to be a biological parent but doesn't have or want to spend $150,000 on an egg donor and surrogacy process, which is how much it costs approximately in the United States right now. And maybe that client of mine who might be a 40-year-old woman that doesn't want to just get married to a guy she's been dating from Match.com for three months um, to have a baby and then get divorced, because I see those divorce clients as well, um, and instead think, how about instead of rushing into a relationship um, to have a child, I could do this with my gay best friend from college and have actually a lot more stability in that kind of relationship. Um, and in addition, I work with um, people who are doing platonic co-parenting with maybe a lesbian couple and a gay couple who decide that, you know, um, a woman from the lesbian couple and a, um, a man from the male same-sex couple are going to get together and um, find a way to platonically do an egg baster or go to a fertility clinic process in order to be biological parents together and then maybe all four are going to co-parent or maybe three people are going to co-parent so that it's a couple and an extra person or, or two couples. Um, and then finally, I work with people who are polyamorous, which is the idea that you can be in more than one loving relationship and with full consensual honesty with everyone involved and not just that you can sort of have the open relationship and swinger idea of being able to have maybe a close primary relationship um, and the only person you have romance with, but then also be able to have other sexual relationships. Polyamory is the idea that you're at least open to more than one committed relationship at a time. So sometimes 
in my community with my clients. That's three people who are in a committed relationship together as a triad or a throuple or four people who are in a committed relationship together as a quad. And um, that's, I think, also a really valid family form. And I work to support people by helping them create co-parenting agreements or agreements about how they want to share their finances and really talk them through a lot of the um, potential challenges to help them make plans in advance and make sure that all of their intentions are on the same page. And I think those conversations are actually more important than the contract you end up with at the end. Um, I, I think it's a really powerful way to support other kinds of families. And I am actually myself polyamorous. My husband and I have been together for 12 years. We're both bisexual and um, we're in a polyamorous relationship. And for us, that's part of our expression of being bisexual people. I was really tormented in my mid-20s. Um, thinking I'm going to have to choose to be with a woman for the rest of my life or I'm going to have to choose to be with a man for the rest of my life. And it was just this agonizing choice for me because it felt like it was going to be really difficult. Um, it felt like, are you going to only eat sweet foods forever or savory foods forever? And I was like, no, I can't. <laughs> um, and for me, that's part of an expression of my bisexuality. But there is sometimes is a stereotype that bisexual people are sexually promiscuous or that we can't be monogamous. And I think that's absolutely not accurate. Um, this is something that works for me. And there are a good number of people who are bisexual who are also polyamorous or otherwise non-monogamous as part of an expression of their bisexuality. But that certainly is not for everyone. And even being polyamorous does not imply sexual promiscuity. I'm somebody who has a few ongoing connections in addition to my partnership, including a woman I've been involved with for five years. And that's a, a more full expression of who I am as a bisexual woman, and it's something that my spouse and husband fully celebrates and that I celebrate in him as well. Um, so those are family forms that have not been traditionally supported by a legal services organization. Many legal services organizations that work with LGBT people primarily work with lesbian or gay couples, you know, female same-sex couples or male same-sex couples, or work with transgender people to get name change documents. But I was interested in, in supporting a fuller range of what LGBTQ families can look like, which can sometimes um, involve kinship units such as polyamorous people. Um, I think it's also valid to make connections between these kinds of queer families and people who might not think of themselves as queer or LGBTQ such as people who form kinship networks in the urban black community where there's communities of aunties who get together and are supporting each other and raising children. There's a lot of other really valid ways to create family. Um, you know, if my sister and I wanted to buy a house together and raise children together and pay taxes together, why shouldn't we be allowed to? Why is that relationship any less valid than two people who were in love and got married in Vegas last week? Um, okay. I, I think that it's really an important conversation now for us as a next step after same-sex marriage to think about um, those other kinds of family forms as well. So there's a lot of times that we are not even paying attention to the fact that there are bisexual people and we're not gathering the right data. So one of the things that we can do is, you know, in terms of policy, um, when we're gathering data about people and we're gathering data about sexual orientation, then we should make sure that we don't just have like lesbian, gay, bisexual as one category, that we really need to break that apart and understand bisexual people um, uh, separately from the way we understand lesbian, gay people. Like there's some overlap, but there's also some distinctions. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, there's also um, ways in which we want to make sure that we're providing services um, that 
that are and and doing you know putting resources um, into the needs of bisexual people proportionate to both the number of bisexual people in the population and the level of need of bisexual people, which is pretty high. So when we look at like funding um, at NIH, for example, um, the National Institutes of Health around um, sexual orientation, you would think that based on the number of bisexual people and the need, at least half of those funds would be going to study bisexual people and services for bisexual people. And, and, and we're not seeing that. I have to say there's some really encouraging stuff going on in terms of, um, you know, NIH uh, collaborating with, with researchers to recognize that need and try to um, identify kind of what the agenda for bisexual health research needs to be so that there are some really good things happening around, around that. But, um, but some of those kinds of policies around what kind of data we collect what kinds of resources are used. And then the last thing is what kinds of protections we have for people. So, um, for example, if someone is, you know, seeking asylum in the United States because they're persecuted in the country that they're coming from based on their sexual orientation and they're bisexual, then, then if they are seeking asylum, like, they might get told, oh, well, just make sure you don't get into a relationship with somebody of, of another gender because, you know, you should just say you're gay um, because, you know, otherwise, you know, we, we won't necessarily be able to provide those protections for you. And, and you know, that doesn't really work for people because they, you know, they're still being just as persecuted based on being bisexual, you know, in another country. And so saying we're not going to acknowledge that bisexuality as a um, foundation for your persecution uh, just is denying the, the reality of their experience. That brings us to the end of our two-parter on bisexuality. And we hope that it has been as informative for you as it was for us, that we could do our teeny podcast part in chipping away at some stigma, and that maybe some of you feel less alone and less confused or okay with being confused. Right. So with that, I wanted to make sure that we've gotten all of the resources from the individuals, and they are—they have been gracious in sending it to me through emails and sending it to us through emails and through social media. So we will definitely be posting that as well. Mm-hmm. If you guys will look for it, it will both be on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagrams. Yes, 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 yes. And if you have any any works that you'd like to send us, any resources you'd like to send us, any bikus you'd like to oh, send us, bikus. please do. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou and on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Thanks again to our fabulous interviewees. Amazing people. We thank you, thank you, friend. thank you. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank I you. I am going to Twitter stalk you and social media stalk you in a good way. <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Yeah. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 